Okay, Matt, are we rolling? Are we going? I am rolling. It is recording. Uh, so we did our inaugural episode not really knowing what would happen, and I was worried, Matt. Wait, how do we sync up? I'm not on speaker. Part of why this is happening, Matt, is that I don't even understand how the sync up process works. Okay, so I think you're on speaker. So yeah. What it is is I need to make a loud sound so that there's a spike in the audio that I can use to line up our audio. Oh. Okay. Make a loud sound. Okay, so I'm gonna make a loud sound right now. You ready? Yeah. All right, Matt and Ethan, syncing up. All right, now you can go off speaker. Matt. What's up? Uh, we are doing this podcast on tech and the media. We did our inaugural episodes, and I was I, I was worried. I was worried because I had told... To my mind, a ridiculous story about a, a very drunk-seeming Tucker Carlson saying awful things about my former boss, Joan Walsh. Right. And there was interest from a Washington Post reporter in, in making it an article. Right. And I was, I was just very worried about it becoming a thing, Matt. I sure. was very worried. And I think he tweeted it out. Yeah. And became, it went from being an article to being a tweet. Yeah, he tweeted it out. It ju there just didn't seem to be a lot of interest. There was just, okay, so Tucker Carlson said something terrible <laughs> nine years ago. Nobody gave a shit at all. But I was worried that it would become a thing. I just don't want to get involved in the thing. Hey, I'm look, I agree with you, man. Look, I mean, it was the thing, the thing that it did was it forced us to release the podcast earlier than we might have otherwise and get this yeah. rolling. So that, that probably was all a good thing. Well, yeah, well, that's not even explaining the timeline that for whatever reason, this reporter was going to talk about this <laughs> yeah, gonna and was us. interested in making a story like, by sheer coincidence. I had told the story on the podcast on this <laughs> podcast that we did, and the reporter was interested in it um, completely unrelated to the podcast, but said, oh, OK, maybe when the podcast comes out, I'll talk about it. That didn't that didn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I was I was worried about it. Uh, I was I, I was worried about it becoming a thing, but only one person. One person out there, as far as I could see, voiced any sort of issue with me for telling the story, Matt, because uh -huh. they saw the tweet and a reader and I don't have I don't have his tweet in front of me, but it's paraphrasing. He was disappointed that I had revealed my true colors uh, as just another smug media liberal. Um, you know, I, I, there there was some other there was some other insulting terminology terminology mm -hmm. in there, and I, I can't remember what it was. But he had tweeted at me because he saw the Washington Post reporter's tweet, and so Matt, I feel like <laughs> yes, in that yes. scenario, I had <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt. <laughs> even, even, even. I am monologuing on you a little bit. No, 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 no. It's good. It's good. I just uh, I'm like, kind of you're, it's like you're, I'm sort of you, you, this whole, but the tone, your tone is like a real, like dear readers, like, like the beginning of our magazine, like the, the opening letter from the editor. <laughs> I'm trying to Dan Carlin the situation. <laughs> All right. So, so this man, he contacts you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like I have two options, two options in front of me, Matt, you know, option number one, I react and I feel insulted, right? I, he, he's insulted me and I want to lash out at him. Yes. And guess what? Can you what? imagine? A conservative has said something bad about you on the internet. 
I, it, unbelievable. And guess what? A lot of my followers, probably not so conservative, probably despise Tucker Carlson. I could put this man uh, in the figurative stocks. I could quote tweet him with something snarky, right. fire back. A few of them would pile on this guy. You could all I dunk on this man. I can dunk on this man. I can signal. I can signal to to, my, to the like-minded that I'm anti Tucker Carlson, and that's that's option. That's option one. That's maybe the socially incentive incentivized option, mm -hmm. right? You get a little bit of dopamine. You get some engagement from doing that. Option two, and it's the option I picked. Um, I direct message him. I ask, hey, what is this all about? We have a more human conversation, and that that's what happened. He uh, immediately was more contrite and apologetic for being insulting. He is a Tucker fan, um, and he was actually trying to convey that his politics weren't down the line Republican, and it went back and forth, and he's a subscriber to The Athletic, and he indicated Ooh, that he would, continue to, he would continue to, to subscribe. And so what's interesting to me about that, Matt, is I have option one. I think that's the socially incentivized option. And option two, I believe is the more emotionally healthy option, number one. And number two, it seems to be the more business incentivized mm. option. And so I, I present you these two. Being a good person, lining up with business interests. Uh, uh -oh, yeah. now I've got <laughs> a problem. As it always does. <laughs> As it always does. Uh, but, but I lay that out to you, Matt, because I think we're going to probably talk about these layoffs that are happening in digital media. Mm -hmm. And there are two arguments. There are two main arguments. Right. There is... Let's lay out the first one that is not your argument, but I've seen a little bit from people who don't like what mostly progressive digital media has become. And they say this is happening because it's too ideological. It's too based on angry clickbait. It's too dumb. And there just isn't a market for this thing. And so it's it's a cultural argument that might line up with a scenario that I'm that I'm uh, outlaying where uh, people are acting in a way on Twitter that doesn't actually correlate to them generating value for the companies they work for. And maybe this is part of the tale for how they've run aground. Now, the other argument is your argument. I'm more partial to it. I don't think that it's the complete truth, but I think it's most of the truth that there just ain't, ain't any money in this whole thing. And that's because there are content monopolies, Facebook especially. And this idea, it's almost like we have a bunch of animals on the Serengeti and they're all trying to drink from a river and the river is just dry. And trying to say like, hey, certain animals are being really dumb about how they position themselves is kind of missing the point. You know, the real story is that there's just no water. There's no water there. So can you, after my... Uh, <laughs> A long preamble. Could you address any of that? Yeah, no, totally. Well, here let let's let's take it back because the, you bring up the Serengeti thing brings up a metaphor that I use sometimes that I think would be good to to get onto the pod, uh, which is like sort of my original argument um, about Facebook uh, being a, like a zoo, like a metaphor for thinking about Facebook as a zoo, for like understanding how Facebook came to prominence. So you can kind of imagine like first stage Facebook as like it was this like thing on the internet. It was a website that people went hey, to. Hey, first, first of all, first of all, this is, I'm such an asshole for saying this, but you have to curb the likes, Matt. I mean, I we're not in San Diego likes. anymore. Oh, you, you, gotta, gotta you gotta excise the likes. Interesting. We're not we're not we're not on the beach anymore. It's interesting I don't think that we ever my were. podcast full of hating Facebook is also filled with likes. <laughs> That's the ultimate <laughs> irony. All right, all right, all right. So Continue. Facebook uh, is akin to, <laughs> as such, as such as uh, 
<laughs> so Facebook is you can imagine it as a, a like a website you know online. It wasn't the biggest website uh, at first. I mean, it was obviously taking the world by storm. But think of it as like a little zoo. It's like a cool zoo that people enjoyed going to, and uh, they the the Facebook zoo realized that they you know needed more attractions on their site. So what they did was they went out into the Serengeti and they saw all the animals out there, like the big wild open space that was the internet. Uh, and so they enticed all these animals. They said to them, hey, look, you know, this big wide Internet is, is it, it's it's interesting, but it's hard to navigate. There's lots of different things. And all of your fans, they're here safe in the safety of our zoo. Won't you bring some of your animals into our zoo? So like this was like first stage Facebook, right, where all these animals set up pages on Facebook. So like the lion made their Facebook page so their fans could find them there. And though, even though most lions were out on their website, even though the onion, for example, my old employer was posting most of their stuff on the onion.com they were also posting things on Facebook because people were already sharing their stuff on Facebook and so Facebook made the argument well why don't you share it on Facebook and maybe there'll be a business opportunity for you there so all these animals sent representatives to the Facebook zoo and everybody started enjoying those animals within the zoo but then the sort of the second stage of Facebook was that what we didn't realize was going on was that people were now only going to Facebook. They were only seeing that content on Facebook. And yeah, maybe it linked out to the site, but increasingly more things were native to Facebook, for example, videos uh, and even articles for a time. And they weren't going out and seeing those animals in the Serengeti. What this sort of was like was like basically Facebook took a bunch of like hunters out from their zoo out into the Serengeti and they just shot all of the animals in the wild. So now your website is no longer your website. It's just a repository of things that you once posted on Facebook.com. And BuzzFeed was like a perfect example of this. BuzzFeed was kind of like they rose at this exact time where they were mostly Facebook native. You know, like you go to BuzzFeed.com and it's a pretty shitty site because really what you, you see most of their stuff is just being pumped through multiple different pages or as they say, verticals onto Facebook.com. So it's like Facebook.com slash BuzzFeed, Facebook.com slash BuzzFeed food or whatever, BuzzFeed video, whatever their, all their little verticals were. That's how you saw stuff. But in aggregate, it, it in theory was supposed to drive people back to their site. But what happens is that and this is, I think, like one of the most profound things that's like very simple but important for people to know is things that do well on a platform are the things that are going to do well on that platform. So mm -hmm. something that does well on Facebook is going to be the, the thing that does well on Facebook. It's, it's not necessarily the same thing that's going to do well on Twitter or the same thing that's going to do well on your own website. It's just the thing that works within all of the restrictions and contexts of Facebook.com. So now all this, the only representatives of each species of animal from the Serengeti, they're now just only on in this zoo. And now Facebook has complete control and they dictate how those animals act and behave in order to get, you know, the views and clicks that they want. So it's sort of like, you know, yeah, like to the to the to the to the toucan, like, yeah, hey, you know, you're you're a very beautiful bird, but, you know. Look over here, the chimpanzee is doing all these top-down cooking videos, and people are liking those. <laughs> Why don't you, the toucan, start doing some top-down cooking videos? Or, oh, lion, look, I, I know you're like the king of the jungle, or so you thought, but have you considered doing live streaming? We have a new live streaming product, and lion, you know, just eating food violently isn't enough for people. They want it to be in a live streaming context where now you put rubber bands around your food until the food pops. 
what do you think? Like, so it was like hmm. all this stuff, Facebook was just dictating the terms. So now kind of extending it to your metaphor a little bit, we have two competing animals in the Serengeti metaphor. All of the animals <laughs> left out in the Serengeti. So the animals in the zoo are fucked. You're just fucked. If you're trying to put stuff on Facebook, you're fucked. You're dead. You're, you're, you're worthless to everybody. But now, so everybody is still trying to clamor for a living out in the Serengeti, and there's just no resources for it. No, there's no, it's, it's almost, maybe instead of the hunters, it's, it's like what you're saying. It's like there was once a flowing Wait, can we river. mix these metaphors? Are, are, they, are they redirecting the water from the river and pumping it into the zoo? Yeah, is that exactly. What's they're taking the water from the river and they're redirecting it to the zoo. And now all the animals left in the desert are fighting over this trickle of water. And then what these people are saying is like, uh, look, the reason why the zebra is not able to uh, you know, get enough water is because he's too liberal. He's just <laughs> the, the, the zebra is just too consumed with identity I'm, politics, I'm really and so tired he's, he's not able to drink I'm, I'm, water. Like that's what I'm really this is tired to. about being lectured by millennial wildebeest. You know, I just don't. <laughs> I don't really need that in my life. How about you not get eaten for a few uh, for a few weeks and then come back to me? It's just to me. It's like maybe this is an argument. Like maybe like yeah, there okay, are too well, many okay, liberals but, went but, into journalism, and yeah, maybe they were too like screechy or whatever and sure maybe you can kind of like root that back in like gawker journalism which i think is an argument that you like to make ethan but i think it's just missing the point you know what i mean it's mm. just we're just like fighting as the titanic goes down you know we're like fighting over like the placement of a light bulb as the whole boat sinks it's just like irrelevant to me we can have this discussion later for now journalism but, is literally dying art is dying I'm, the internet I'm the most beautiful thing we've ever created in modern mm -hmm. times is fucking dead well, I mostly agree with you, but I do think there's something to the idea of these websites uh, having an incredible redundancy, right? I do think there's something to that argument. I'm looking at this op-ed in The Spectator, which I think is a more conservative uh, British publication, and I don't really know who the author is, but I'm, I'm looking at this paragraph that was sent to me by a friend. Uh, there was a time when I liked, in quotations, the Facebook pages of Vox, Vice, The Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Mike, Upworthy, Mashable, Refinery29, Slate, Salon, Now This, Thrillist, Gawker. Um, reading the content, watching experience in real time uh, as it was funneled in my news feed, I came to feel, well, okay, I'm just going to skip ahead. Basically, what the argument eventually is for these publications is what is even the difference between them. Um, yeah, and so, but that that has nothing to do with those publications and everything to do with their incentives. Like they're in the zoo, yeah. so the only thing that succeeds mm -hmm. in the zoo is zoo stuff, which is yeah. you know increasingly Trump stuff and mostly extreme stuff, mostly just like extreme takes that drive clicks. Like everybody who works in publishing knows this. Like you had to do that. You had to eat your vegetables. The way of eating your vegetables when you worked for a website was posting something that was going to get clicks, and then you could mm -hmm. do your thing that you thought was actually good. Like that was how it worked for a long time. The deal that you made was like, look, I know you want to write this like or make this bigger, ambitious thing. But look, can you just spit something out that has something to do with Trump and that we can put a reactionary headline on? Well, and then but, you can okay, do but, but, but so there's a synthesis to the positions. I mean, I think a lot of what's happening is that there is a lot of resentment towards what these publications became and the group think they evinced and the constant need to straw man other points of view for maximum outrage for for attention and this was a very unlikable thing so i think when these publications go down a lot of people have the schadenfreude and they try to make the schadenfreude uh maybe more of a morality play than it actually is right and they they, they try to make it 
the the moral failings of these publications. That's why the, the, they've run aground. But I think there is a synthesis to your view and the view from the people who really didn't like these publications. And I would put myself in that category, by the way. So, fa- um, so I've which, got an interesting. Which is, I have an interesting story yeah. about this. So okay. clickbait itself, clickbait as we know it, is an offshoot of the Onion. This is something and like the it's this weird thing where like the onion is actually the strange nexus of like a lot of things. But there's a very direct line. So for one, obviously, you can make the case that like onion was the original like fake news, like all the fake news stuff went on people who who wrote for the onions radar first because like c- competitors, quote unquote, like the daily current or things like this, we would see their headlines go around and they weren't jokes, but people believed them. And then we would all get very mad because the people at, who worked for those publications who were like nameless and who never, we never knew who the fuck they were. They thought that they were, you know, it used to be a thing that people would believe onion articles. And we all thought it was really funny because onion articles are so clearly a joke. And we we're very proud that we were writing things that were jokes that, that people believed. Uh, but that that strained credulity. But that's actually not what the story that I'm going to tell. So the beginning of clickbait. What you're talking about is people hating clickbait. And yes, people do hate clickbait. But clickbait was like invented, and clickbait was invented essentially by Upworthy. Uh, you remember Upworthy, Ethan? Yes, yes. Everybody yes, yes. does. And Upworthy was one of the first casualties. <laughs> I, I, you won't believe what happens next. Yes, yes, that whole thing of you and this this started becoming a virus all over the internet was a, a, the, you know headlines like that. So those that website Upworthy was founded by a man named Peter Keckley, who I'm sure is actually a decent guy and was just trying to make something that worked on the internet. He worked at the Onion. He was an Onion writer. He was just before my time there. But he went and wa- he wanted there to be basically a, a strong liberal presence on the Internet. He wanted to get messages that he believed in, progressive messages in particular, out there online. And so he correctly surmised, well, the best way to do that is to optimize those things for online. And so what what Upworthy was was, yeah, they made like big liberal pieces and a lot of them, you know, like pointed to foundations, pointed to nonprofits. Like there's a very strong mission driven thing. But what they did was they created this new way of writing headlines where they had their contributors write dozens and dozens of different variations of news headlines and then A.B. test those on Facebook with the articles that they were going to. How he came up with this is this is exactly the same as the Onion headline submission system. How you mm. write for the Onion is I, if you're a contributor or a staff writer, you write dozens and dozens, you know, 20, 30 headlines a day if you're on staff and if it's like a, a headline generating period or a week if you're a contributor or, or a couple times a week. You just reams and reams of these and then you go through and find the best ones. And that's how the Onion works is just going through reams and reams of headlines that are funny and finding the best ones, knowing that from quantity will come that quality. That's what Upworthy was, was they would generate different permutations. You won't believe what the Pope said, or the Pope said this, now you're going to be shocked. Like what all different variations on those, (laughs) and they spit them out onto Facebook, and ones that worked really fucking worked. And so that became the way that business was done online, was you would A-B test headlines that were more and more extreme. Mean and this was like the first ish instance of like these things were all driving traffic. We couldn't stop clicking on them, even if we hated them. I remember having to mentally decide, like mentally, like put up a wall saying, "I don't care if I want to read these things. I will not read clickbait." And I myself <laughs> self-regulated, 
and maybe other people did this too, but I just refused to click on clickbait. I didn't even, I, and it, it wasn't even I was subscribed to Upworthy. It didn't matter. That shit popped into my feed because that's how Facebook works. Somebody would share it. But you, I had to do that. And then the, the, their constructions were simple enough that Facebook was able to make an algorithm to suppress enough of them that it made a dent in Upworthy and Upworthy was killed. But it, it was too late. That strategy had already... Well, but, but, but is, yeah, isn't that part of, uh, isn't this part, of maybe the asteroid that wiped out, now I'm mixing too many metaphors, but all what is happened is that, yeah, that's all we do on this, but... Uh, these publications got used to doing the clickbait thing, the the outrage clickbait especially, and then the algorithm changed, and then they were fucked. <laughs> Is that well, what happened? Kinda, no, but so this, but you have to. This was like proto. This was not even. This was at the. Yeah. This was at the dawn of BuzzFeed. What I'm talking about. I'm not even talking about the recent algorithm shift. I mean, yes, like that is like con the, the story of Facebook is publications finding something that works in order to get their message out. Facebook changing their algorithm either because people don't like it in the case of BuzzFeed or sorry in the case of Upworthy or just for uh, they realize they can change their algorithm to incentivize any behavior that they want so they change the algorithm to incentivize video rather than uh, rather than articles or live rather than videos or certain types of thumbnails versus other ones but anyway so but the damage had been done as far as clickbait and BuzzFeed in these places they now did this but it, they learned how to make subtler clickbait where it wasn't this like can you guess type clickbait it was more just extreme they really if you just have something extreme it will spread and then it didn't matter if that extreme thing linked back to an article or not. You could have just like the shell of a website or barely anything and just post essentially headlines and memes and they could be not true and they would spread just as much as the extreme stuff coming from actual publications. So this is this is how we got into this position now, but it's all driven by Facebook. It's all driven by, mm. you know, Facebook is the way that most people get their news. And so people have to play those games. They have to play the games that Facebook puts in front of them in order to get their message out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with all of that. I, I think I could synthesize uh, your uh, theory on this with a little bit of the counter theory, right? I think that the two might be related. I think the people, the counter theory, they might in a way be conflating symptom with disease. I think that's what I would say. I agree with them on some premises. I agree that a lot of these publications uh, basically produce a lot of uh, agitprop and uh, just are, 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 are very ideologically narrow and have people who are also saying things that are fundamentally silly and that this decreases interest in these publications. But I wonder if I can synthesize that with your philosophy and say effectively that this is a symptom of the greater economic terrain just being completely ruined, that they're not looking to serve their customers because they don't have uh, they don't have a standard, decent, make a good product, customer rewards it dynamic. And so that perhaps is why they've gotten so far afield. I mean, to, to expanding on that a little bit, I, I, I think the main ideological bias problem is narcissism. That's even bigger than the political bias problem, if, yeah. if I'm just to, to posit this. And I think that is a result of people perhaps deriving their validation from these narcissism casinos uh, of, of Twitter, for instance, because they're perhaps not getting the, the, the validation one would want from just seeing how much money they're making for their company. I mean, I, I have sympathy. I have sympathy for getting fired. I've been fired. I got fired. So when I see these people at BuzzFeed, for instance, and Huffington Post get fired, I do have sympathy. But 
when I was looking at my timeline and looking at all of these people who had been fired with blue check marks, uh, making their statements about having been fired, I was a little aghast at almost nobody mentioning readers. Almost nobody. It was the people I worked with. Uh, these people were so cool. I loved the Slack channel. And I'm surprised because that, that's what I think you should do. I know it's a difficult, I know it's a difficult thing, right? I know. Um, I, so here's what I'm gonna. I I I have more sympathy, as far as like I know these people cared about writing things that people wanted to see. I'm sure they yeah. did. But, but I, I think that you are. It. They'd I, forgotten it in the moment. I mean, you have to thank the customer. You only survive by the customer. Well, but I think I you know have even to remember, even if it's broken, and I, you have and, to, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky in a way, right? I'm lucky because not everybody gets fired and gets to find out. What I, what happened to me when I got fired was I got a lot of emails from people I didn't even know existed because they weren't on Twitter. It was pharmacists in Albany. It was uh, vet, veterinarians in Hayward, wherever they were in the Bay Area and sometimes not in the Bay Area. I finally, getting fired, reached the threshold where these people who wouldn't even comment on an article or say anything on Twitter- You mean normal uh, people? Would actually, Literally normal, normal people. people. Normal people. people who wouldn't, normal who, pe who don't comment. Only, yes. only crazy people comment. <laughs> normal people. Normal people. Not that the people who are commenting and talking on Twitter are normal, but normal people. And I realized to myself, holy shit, these were my customers, and I didn't even know the whole the whole time that these were my customers. I didn't know, and I only survive by making them by making them happier giving them something of value and that's what allows me to get hired to the next thing and that's what allows me to be at the athletic it's this idea that I might have readers but it just seemed to me that the people who got fired at, at, at BuzzFeed and, and Huffington Post with I mean maybe a few exceptions I didn't see did not conceive of their job as this they conceived of it as institutions i kept seeing people saying hire them they'll they'll you know hire them they'll make your newsroom great they should be hired it was this idea that, they, that a these people just deserved to be hired and b if they provided anything it was to these institutions there was no mention of the actual customer and i found that to be bizarre and, and a negative indicator that's yeah well i i think I'll, i mean i think that i will be nicer as to far as far as to say i think these people did care about their, their message getting out to people and they liked it when they saw it have an impact on the world. And I'm sure they looked at comments you know, of people being positive. However, there is a profound alienation that happens when all of your content is going through this machine. The social media yes. machine is you simply lose your audience. You do not know who they are. You do not know, you know, they just become clicks and views. And part of this is because there's no guarantee that somebody who saw what you wrote you know, yesterday is going to be seeing the thing that you wrote today, even if those things are equally popular on the internet. It's impossible to grow a fan base because it's completely mediated by this black box machine. And if I write something about tech today, and then I write something about culture tomorrow, even though, even though there might be a strong through line, I'm interested in both of those things. As a writer, the culture thing is going to go to the fans of like Mad Men or whatever that I wrote it for. And the tech thing is going to go to the fans of, you know, Roku or whatever that was going to. Mm -hmm. you, you can't build up a fan base even if you have disparate interests in what you write. There's no way to, to do this. You, I, I know this because I like there are writers that I like and I never get served their articles on. I mean, you know, when I was using Facebook or whatever, I would just have to f over time realize, oh, I keep liking the same things from this writer. I just need to like yeah. go to them directly when I think of it. At this point, I don't even like that's the thing. The, the great fallacy is that the feed gives you what you want. The feed doesn't give you no. shit. The feed gives you 
what it wants to give you. The feed gives you what people have paid to be in the feed. That's the whole thing about the fucking feed. We, we, we smash our faces into our feeds and gobble up what is given to us under the promise that this is what we actually like, as if the machine knows like a god what our true impulses are. Yeah. And that's what I, places I, like I, Facebook like say is like, look, I'm sorry, this is what people want. So we're giving it to them. And if, you know, if the people don't want what you're serving, it must be you've got something wrong in your head thinking that's what people want. But that's complete well, garbage. I try to go without algorithm now. I try to, if I have writers I like, I will go on, you know, I, I, I will look at their Twitter feed, usually in, in, in privacy mode. So it, that doesn't actually maybe prevent, you know, my ISP from knowing what I'm doing, but I just don't want to be algorithmatized. So I'm not, I'm not signing into my Twitter. I'm not signing into my Twitter. I just go to their Twitter feed. I read something they say. If they mention some other writer who wrote something interesting, maybe I'll start checking their, their this stuff is... out. But it's... This is fascinating, mm -hmm. Ethan, because I've started doing the same thing, and we haven't talked yeah. about this. I yeah. I haven't gone so far it's as better. the privacy route, but no. But the thing that I talk about, where like, um, you know, the internet used to be a bunch of like URLs that your fingers like remembered. You know, where the internet it used to be, you kind of like stared vacantly at a URL bar, and your fingers would just fill in the places that it that it knew it would, it, like it kind of like the places that <laughs> your body knew it wanted to go. You know. Mm -hmm. And then the URL bar would like autofill and it was always like, so you type in N and it would go to NY times T and for me, it would go to the onion C and it would go to CN.com because I went to CN.com one time instead of CNN.com and the browser <laughs> remembered CN.com, which was like yeah. a Chinese owned like non-site like, but like that was like the, a, a time of the internet where we just all had tabs open from websites that we went to that we kept meaning to check back on. I'm now back at that. But all of my websites are twitter.com slash like writers that I like slash like yeah. at Zanep Tufekshi. We're slash using Twitter. Moon. We're we're using Twitter like it's the old Internet. We are. We're just. That, yes, exactly. Yeah. And because it still functions in some ways like that. But it's because like the feed won't serve like my this writer that I like name check constantly because <laughs> he's so good. Uh, John Herman, who works for The Times now. I don't get his stuff even in my Twitter feed. I don't know. Maybe like we're time we're mistimed or something. But I know he writes shit. And, but I never see it until I have to find it later. It's like fucking weird. It, like, this is my favorite writer on the Internet. And he, he does like tech stuff. And I have to like go to his Twitter and find out a day later that something was posted. The whole fucking point of this was that it was better than an RSS feed or that the feed would serve you what you want. But it never fucking does mm -hmm. yeah and I'm, I'm, I'm looking now at my twitter feed and it's just such a mess it's such a cacophony it's so much easier just to garbage. just go to it's so much easier just to go to, to individual uh individual writers and i i think that works better but i i guess what i'm saying is that again circling circling back um i i am a little more into the cultural argument than you are i do think that all things being equal, there are better business strategies and there are worse business strategies. And you're you're right that the big problem, the big issue, is this one of uh, content monopolization. But even within that terrain, there is a way you could potentially generate enough value to get subscribers, um, and you could do reporting that does have a value that you could trade on. Like that is theoretically possible. Oh, look, all I know, all I know is this: is that if you go to the New Yorker's Facebook page, like the New Yorker which is the like everybody would agree it is the like one of the highest caliber publications right even a detractor of the new yorker would say that they care about what they that what they make is high quality work right 
Um, I th- certainly their print publication. Their what? Certainly their print their print publication. Yeah, I think sure, their sure. online publication reads like a shitty college newspaper, but their print publication <laughs> is excellent. Okay, sure, but most of what's online is what's in the print. Doesn't matter either way. They strive for quality. If you want to make this argument that like Facebook or feeds reward quality, all I have to do is direct you to the New Yorker's Facebook profile, where they no longer have like put money behind things, and you can see things just get like literally dozens of likes, like just fucking nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's just like nobody and may occasionally a Borowitz story or something gets like shared more, which fucking tells you everything you need to know. But huh. like so it's just like these things don't reward quality and instead they just reward garbage. And this is and the, what's crazy is you listen to what Mark Zuckerberg like what his plan is. But, so by the way, Matt, Matt, you know, the contrarian part of me wants to stick up for Borowitz. You yeah, know, you know I, that part I, of me all is I itchy, do is bait you to do that. Matt, please, Ethan, go ahead. <laughs> You know what? Why don't we make the I've rest never, of this I've never found him funny. Defending Borowitz. <laughs> I, I've never found him funny, but just seeing all the cool kids agree that <laughs> that obviously he's unfunny. I go, oh, maybe the baby boomers who like him, maybe they, they can see something. I don't know. I, I need to check it you're out. Sick, I need to open my mind. You're sick. You need help. This contrarian thing. You need help. It's an illness. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, so the uh, oh, fuck. What was I? Where was I at? <laughs> Why Borowitz is funny? I oh, think yeah, is what you were about yeah, to get I into. No... Oh, Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, so Zuckerberg. I'm, <laughs> I'm sh- <laughs> Zuckerberg, a man who finds Andy Borowitz funny. What he believes. Oh, by the way, the Borowitz. <laughs> I'm looking at the New Yorker website after you've praised the New Yorker website. It's a Borowitz. Uh, in ominous development for Trump, Roger Stone gets Mueller tattoo. A headline from Andy Borowitz. Oh, 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 oh. belly laugh. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. I just imagined the uncle telling me that. All right. So so, uh, Zuckerberg laid out his, like, content plan for Facebook. And so uh, the the overall takeaway from this is that Zuckerberg, Facebook became people's editors. And anyone that worked at one of these websites knows what I'm fucking talking about, where your boss is no longer – the your boss your boss is the algorithm and you get stuck in this position where either you write something that you think is good and your editor gets and like that you think is good and it doesn't do well or you write something that you think is bad and it does well and so you're sort of fucked either way do you reject the premise that there there are are even in this environment that's been um what do we what do we want to use for the term what is it my, my brain isn't working what, what does it mean a drought it's 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 had water removed from it that there are better strategies for finding the water than other strategies and that a lot of these publications weren't employing the correct strategies and that some of sometimes there was an ideological blindness look okay i'll give you an example and you can tell me what you think about it um i was listening to a podcast uh where uh, matt welch uh, was on it, and I think he, he – I'm not even sure if he is a libertarian, but he runs Reason. He's the editor-in-chief of Reason, and he was saying that in short order, uh, the Robbie Suave article debunking the initial interpretation of the uh, Covington video uh, got over a million page views. It probably has way more since since Matt Welch said that, right? And all Suave did was sit down – I mean, this is the story that Welch was, was telling because this wasn't any kind of uh, – th- th- this wasn't exactly Watergate. All Suave did was sit down and actually park himself there and watch the videos and then effectively write a recap that ran counter-narrative to what all these publications were running with. And that immediately just crushed it and got a shitload of audience engagement, and, that, and that's all it was. And why did it take that? You know, that wasn't a hard thing to do. 
It wasn't. All you had to do was go against the groupthink in that scenario and watch the video and actually be tethered to evidence. And look, I think that that is money made for, for a reason as a publication to, uh, to have Suave do that. So how is that not illustrative of the ways in which groupthink maybe deprives uh, these companies of getting the audience and therefore the money they could get? Okay, for one, I'm sure they didn't get any, like, maybe they made a little bit of money, but it's not going to sustain them of anything. You know, BuzzFeed fired the girl that, that posted the dress, you know, post, which is like the biggest thing that was ever seen yeah, in the internet. That's, so it doesn't that, fucking matter. So one article doesn't that, fucking matter to anybody. <laughs> so that, get that out of your fucking head. So the, secondly, it doesn't fucking matter because the whole fucking Covington thing was just clickbait. <laughs> the whole thing was clickbait. It didn't fucking matter mm -hmm. if there was a contrarian take on it or there was a correct take on it or whatever. It was teens at a motherfucking rally. We shouldn't be making policy or thinking about things because of what teens do. These are kids. The whole okay. thing is fucked. We, we, the whole we thing all was agree. just a loose tooth we, we, that we couldn't stop playing with. The whole thing was clickbait. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, anything that has to do with it is going to be clickbait. The, the, yeah. the whole thing no. You can't – Covington is like – you can't prove I'm anything only using that, but, uh, but I'm only using – I'm only using that as the most recent example. I uh, yeah, think we no, both but agree. I, I, I know what you mean. We both but agree look, that that was a fundamentally. Kernel, there's always some kernel yeah. at the core of what clickbait is. They're always writing about something. Mm. Like somebody said something, yeah. and then you just spin it. You know what I mean? It doesn't. There's, I like, I, shit I only I bring it up just to give you an example of how going against mainstream media narrative, um, in in that case was a profitable decision. That's 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 all I'm referencing. I think we both agreed that the Covington situation was fundamentally ridiculous. Yeah, I guess, but like, but but we should still, be ashamed it doesn't as fucking a country. matter. Like, so great, so Reason yeah. Mag, like, nothing's gonna happen to Reason Magazine just because they got one scoop. You know, and, and the, who knows? Like, any mm. any publication that exists right now that is like doing well is either subscription based or is backed by like a trade organization or like propagandists or like well, some benefactor. That that's that's what's so difficult about knowing whether these publications are even financially healthy because maybe we could check this out right we could see oh open up the old reason books I don't know how reason is doing as a libertarian publication who knows but right. but but what's made things so complicated is that these institutions have become so fundamentally unprofitable that rich people now buy them just to have a propaganda arm yes. um and they and that's what subsidizing them is, I, I, this, I mean the, the, look, this is how the you want to talk. Well, I, now I let me go off yeah, of this tangent. Um, this, it's it is kind of insane. It is kind of insane, and I realize a lot of great people work at the Washington Post to do great great work, but it is crazy that they are run by the richest man in the world, whose industries just he has he has a finger in everything. Everything yeah. that is a massive conflict of interest, but it, it would be funny though. It would be funny if Bezos uh, just uh, it was a little self-destructive and a little sadomasochistic, and he comes in one day to the to the Wapo offices and he goes, "I want you to take me down." <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. Well, I there's just to, no. This I, is, I, I want I want you to, I want you to fuck me. Well, this I is the fundamental. The fundamental problem is that there simply is yeah. no more independent journalism. It's gone. Mm. It's over. That's what they've killed. That's what when we when like people at Facebook or whatever like, look, I'm sorry, your business model just didn't work. It's like what you've done is you've killed independent journalism. You've killed mm. any semblance of the truth. And look, man, there's plenty of countries that exist without independent journalism. They're mostly like, you know, fucking like fascist regimes or like juntas or whatever or like military run or like, you know, the Philippines f famously right now is going through this where like this brave woman who's the head of the Rappler, which it was a, you know, the BuzzFeed of Philippines is like basically marked for death 
by Duterte. Like it, like this, mm. this is what is going to happen is our continual, our country will continue to exist, but we will not have actual journalism. We will just have mouthpieces for, you know, rich people or for the government or for foreign governments. And we will not have anybody actually doing any good work. Like that's where we're going to end up. And is that what like these tech companies want? That's like the utopia that we've ushered in. Like something is fundamentally fucking wrong here. And it's the way that these places run their businesses. They've, they've stuck their fingers into things, into forces beyond which they should be meddling with. Honestly, it's just the, the, what kills me is that this is our generation. You know what I mean? Like these mm. are these people are our age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. The CEOs of these companies, they're all like mid 30s. And we were all people who came into this world seeing how things were run and we swore we would do it better. You know, we swore we were going to like, you know, we were going to uphold gay rights. We swore we were going to, you know, get rid of greed and like fight climate change and do all this stuff. And we were going to tear down the system. And then and we did. So many of us fucking did. And then we replaced it with something far worse. We weren't <laughs> supposed to be this. We were supposed to. The whole point of getting everybody to be able to talk to each other on the Internet and to be able to observe things was so that we could collect information, see what was actually wrong and fucking fix it. The point of well, yeah, doing so, all of this so, is that so, so we can see shit and make the world better. Not this. Sometimes there's a there's a value in in the system. Sometimes you've got perhaps a, a, an issue with your spine and you need spinal surgery rather than ripping out your whole spine. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, they, maybe that's a, a more conservative sensibility. No, hospitals as an institution do a lot of good. Yes. Well, I, I, I think, um, well, that the, the Facebook ethos is move fast and break things. And it is this, uh, you know, and maybe I would draw an analogy here. Sometimes there's an issue where people make what's good for them. They rationalize it as this is good for society and the destruction that I'm the, the havoc that I'm wreaking is actually good. That's overall. all this their is, their whole thing is that look it's just a you know this is a transitionary time and once everybody just gets on board with the fact that like this is how things are now the whole well, world is going to like reorganize around it and well, it'll be for well, good well, and well, that's well, just well, not what's sometimes well, what's tough is sometimes they're right. You know, sometimes sometimes certain industries need to be disrupted. Sometimes they aren't serving the customers well, and they need to go down. And it's it's difficult to know what do we need and what don't we need. But it's it's a sledgehammer to all of it. And I I would actually draw an analogy um, to uh, this is always what frustrated me with uh, with Gawker. You know, my bugaboo, which I think was tremendously influential to a lot of these publications and how they do things more so culturally um, than the forces we're talking about where Gawker had an ethos of there's too much smarm out there. We need snark. You know, we, it, it, it's kind of this idea of having a predator in the ecosystem that it just makes everything else function better, that we need to be treating people horribly and to be shaming and humiliating people for clicks because that's what, that's what we need to keep uh, society honest. And I think Tom Skoka had this long essay he wrote on SMARM, I believe what is what it was. But the way I always viewed that is that was just a rationalization for them wanting to behave how they wanted to behave. Uh, they liked... And for the fact that they were popular for behaving the way that they were. Exactly, exactly. They wanted to rationalize. So I think... So be, you, you and yeah. I have always had divergent opinions on Gawker. I've always yeah, liked it. I'm, and a lot of my mm -hmm. milieu have liked it. Partially because mm -hmm. I think, I mean, one, I was never, you know, in journalism, so I didn't know, like, the, you know, whatever, like, some deep sides of this. But to me, it was like they felt like they said and did what they wanted. That, like, they had journalistic independence. That, I think, is, even you would admit, uh, like, a sh like the, the best thing about Gawker is that it was independent. 
and it covered and broke a lot of like cool stories because of that but it also just had good cool perspectives on things and saw like underground stuff and you know, recommended. And it had a certain things. punk rock. It, it, in its heyday, it had a certain punk rock ethos that 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 was a little bit fun. Of uh, you know, we're we're, we're going to do things that you just could not do at your that, that your staid publication. Sometimes just fun, goofy stuff, uh, such as um, you know, there was a some there's this story that might be apocryphal, maybe not, about a guy pitching a whole baseball game on on acid back in the day and pitching quite well. So they had one of their editors actually drop acid and play a baseball video game to see how it worked out. Things like that were were kind of part of the brand and and, and sort of fun. You know, I'm not going to deny that. There were good parts to Gawker. There were, and there were talented people who worked for them. But I think ultimately the ideology of ultimately what paid the bills for them, as far as I could see from the outside, was humiliating people. And that's what – they were a tabloid. And it, they, they couldn't just be a tabloid. They had to be something more than that. They had to be something that was muckraking. They had to be something that was speaking truth to, to power. But in the end, what made them money – was tabloid shit was finding somebody's dick yeah. pics and putting I, that but on the internet. Here's the, the macro and, argument and, and, that I would, yeah. would I, the, the macro argument that I would make is that mm -hmm. the that yes they sometimes fucked up, but like these peaks and valleys are indicative are indicative of like what you want. You know you want like their low like unfortunately their lows were very low. Like yeah when they outed the CEO or the uh, the exec at like Condé Nast for like which which no by reason. the way was not no reason there was a reason it just wasn't one they were admitting to it was more rationalization sure. for selfishness right. he worked for Condé Nast Condé Nast was a competitor right. because Condé Nast ran Reddit so they were trying to um, undermine their competitor while presenting it as journalism it was fundamentally very dishonest yeah I'm not sure doing. if Condé Nast was running Reddit at that time but Oh yes, they were. Were they? Because my they yes. only ever had like a small share in it or something. I don't know. Whatever. I don't want to. Okay, maybe running is too much, but but definitely. Also, and I think also they, Gawker perceiving they, Reddit as their competitor seems strange to me. I don't know. Whatever. I, I, I don't want to get bogged. I don't that. think it seems strange at all. I think you're equivocating because you're a little bit partial to Gawker. This 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 was a demonstration of how fundamentally. No, but I don't understand why. No, but I, to got. me, it would just be that Condé Nast was a publication and all the and they were steeped in publication world. Why isn't that enough well, for you? Um, I think that is enough to me that they were just a perceived enemy yeah. and they got far afield because they kept trying to make what was good for them, what their reader actually yeah. wanted. I remember Max Reed, who has written some very interesting things since uh, since his time there. I remember him tweeting out that um, whenever we can expose a C-suite, you know, executive or whatnot, we're going to do it. And I thought to myself, um, your readers just don't even know what Condé Nast is, the majority <laughs> of them. You're doing this for you guys, yeah, yeah. I and mean, you're pretending I it's something else. But, well, here, but, but, but he, I think there's a, but there's an analogy there in how these institutions can cause a lot of damage while trying to fit it within this is why we're the actually actually the good guys ethos. Sure, but like but I would make the argument that like it's good to have these like independent upstart like crazy publications, a world in which they're able to start and maybe burn out, but a new one is going to be made or you know like we want like a hectic system like this as far mm -hmm. as like journalism where people are finding what the boundaries are pushing them because sometimes when they push that boundary it's going to be like huge it's going to be like a it will be an actual story yeah i i, I suppose so um well, I, 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 like I can the do idea. all i can speak to is like creative work and when doing when writing comedy 
all you can do is write what you think is funny and good. And mm-hmm. in general, you're going to have peaks and valleys. Something that I write that I think is funny, sometimes everyone also is going to think it's funny, and that piece will like you know go viral, and it'll spike, and it'll be awesome. Sometimes I'm going to write something that I think is just as funny, but for whatever reason, it doesn't do well at all. So there's like these peaks mm-hmm. and valleys, you know. Like and but in general, if you're good, you're sort of medium, the the average in the middle, that line. One, it's like still high, and two, it's like going up because you're getting better. What mm-hmm. and, and I'm bringing this a little chart up because it's I think it's very important and I think it relates to this post that Mark Zuckerberg made on how he wanted Facebook to function. And it very much is like an editor in chief speaking to his staff. Again, I, I reiterate mm-hmm. my hypothesis that all these things, social media makes a lot more sense if you see yourself as an employee working for free for a shitty media company. I think a lot of what we're talking about if we're making a new theory is just people not owning what they are in a changing environment yeah. and that's that's where a lot of our discontent and and the other thing which we'll get to eventually about your your theories on lack of trust and how mm-hmm. we just don't trust each other and that's a big issue but continue, continue yeah so so zuckerberg he posted this thing like one of his like here's how we're going to regulate you know content on facebook was his like fucking his big post about it and in it he has this chart where he shows, like, this is what we know. For one, what's so fucking crazy about things that Zuckerberg writes are that there's constant, like, digs against humans in them. Uh, mm. And so, you know, there's a, a part in it where he's like, you know, people are, he basically, like, people, unlike machines, are not reliable. Like, that's what, uh, he, you know, that, that's something that he says in this. But he, he makes these charts. And one of them goes, uh, imagine, like, a hockey stick. Uh, like a hockey stick graph where he's where and it's content and views and it's like how extreme the content is versus views and he says what what they've found is that as content gets more extreme people view it more and people share it more and that like leads the hockey stick to go up so as something gets more and more extreme as like a headline gets extreme as like you know a picture gets more and more nudity or shows more and more violence or shows something more and more crazy uh, it it spikes and then it drops once it gets too far extreme and a, and somebody reports it and then one of their like you know fifty thousand people around the globe pulls it down because it violates some you know Facebook thing, right? Like so, that. So, so wait, so wait, does this stop getting viewed because a content distributor ends it and doesn't doesn't allow for it to be distributed, or does it not be? viewed because people don't comfortable don't feel comfortable sharing it anymore because if, if something had nudity in it even if it was interesting i can't see myself sharing Again, that. this is so this is a fake graph put by put out by mark zuckerberg in a blog post ah. and what okay and the reason it, the reason it goes to nothing is because it's got regulators. as much science it, it, it it's got as much science behind it as the the crazy versus hot axis and the big bang theory is yes what you're saying. exactly okay so don't don't try don't try and pick this apart because just like everything Mark Zuckerberg makes, it's fucking bullshit. So <laughs> the the graph drops off because like one of their content moderators has seen it. It was reported and then they pulled it. So and then what Mark wants to do, what he's saying, what our ideal is, is this other graph that he shows, which is the reverse, where it's the same hockey stick, except instead of going up the graph goes down and where he's saying we want to build an algorithm. We want AI to be able to identify in content that's posted on Facebook when it's getting more and more extreme and then disincentivize it, share it less, suppress it until it gradually goes to zero rather than needing a content reporter to take it down. 
Mm. Now, there's so many things that are crazy about this. For one, it's it just is an editorial like guideline. It's like an editorial stance from a, a man who 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 claims he's not an edit, an editor. But beyond that, it it insinuates that basically they're training AI to find what is extreme, whatever that means, and then suppress that. And the thing is, is like what is extreme are things that are interesting. You know, something that might not be, you know, a, like a, a video of like an atrocity is extreme. But if somebody needs to see it, then they should. You know, a Holocaust image is extreme or even like a, a you know, a contrarian take can seem extreme. And if you're having robots dictate what is and isn't extreme, what you're doing is you're creating a system where the only thing that will appear on Facebook is just like middle of the road, milk toast nothingness. Mm. That is they, what they, he they wants for pleasant. Facebook. The pleasant vilification of Facebook, effectively. I should add, by the way, that apparently that that, that graph I, I referenced isn't from the Big Bang Theory. It's from How I Met Your Mother. I don't watch oh, yeah, the yeah. show, so I just, correction. it's a very important correction. Yeah, important correction. I have to. I have to add. Uh, I have to add to that. It's you know, it's it's a little analogous. It, it, it reminds me of Steve Jobs not really wanting anybody to to use porn on their iPhones. Uh, <laughs> Zuckerberg's Z Zuckerberg's attempt here. Well, okay, so I I might not. This might be another digression, but this is just making me think of other things. Do you think that part of what's going on, if we were to circle back to the cultural argument again that you that you reject, the, the, the argument that the culture of these institutions had something to do with them getting less popular and less profitable, do you think that there's a big dichotomy between what people share and what they read? I just I just remember my cousin, my cousin who is a normie. Who uh, you know he, he he subscribes to the athletic shout out shout out Brooks, uh, but he's he's not involved in all this he he uh, isn't in media and he said to me once your what's on Facebook or your Twitter that's not who you are your browser history is who you are and it just made me think I mean it's a little ominous I don't think people want their browser histories put out there for all to see but it makes me wonder if part of what's happening is that people share content that they think that they will be more favorably looked upon for sharing, but that's not actually what they're consuming. And often content has been tailored to what people are inclined to share versus what they want to go to. Yeah, sure. Because we all fucking work for magazines for free. Like you share what you think will do well on Twitter because you think it's going to do well on Twitter. If you read an article, but you're like, Oh, I don't know if anybody will care about this except maybe my one friend, you'll fucking email it to them. Like, and so that you guys can talk about it. But if you think, oh, people need to see this on Twitter, like you're going to post it to Twitter. So like, yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't, the whole thing is like the whole construct is fucked. The closest that I'll get, I'll get to like what this is, is like the, this idea that these are impartial mediums and that they reflect humanity, that Facebook reflects humanity or that what people share on Twitter or Instagram reflects humanity, which I think what's scary is that increasingly, no, humanity is reflecting what's doing well on those platforms. And so hmm. our publications are changing. Sure, they're changing in order to you know, uh, to fit into these algorithms. But then you have to think about it at a more micro level. The people who work at these institutions are also being changed by that. You know, we're going on yeah, 10 years the, the, of this fucking regime. The tail, of course, the it's tail changing is wagging people into the, being more extreme. The tail is wagging the dog. Yeah. 
is it, yeah i think there's something to that i think that it is influential in how it changes culture or at least it changes a sense of what's taboo certainly you know of what will get you fired i mean and like so look at like it, fucking QAnon, right like all these fucking people were driven crazy by memes and things that were posted online that were doing well online with each other mm -hmm. and it had real world effects it made those people nuts it made roseanne crazy <laughs> Like Roseanne, like uh, God, I, I remember seeing the Roseanne tweet that you know got her like taken down, and then she you know tweeted like I'm gonna take a break from Twitter for a while, a, a moment of clarity, realizing that she was a Twitter addict that had been driven crazy, and within hours By she the was way, back on Twitter. How within amazing! Hours. How amazing is it that the most popular show in America was wiped off the air? By just what somebody did with their thumbs that just required a couple yeah, seconds. It's fucking crazy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's fucking. And like, it clearly, I, I mean, it's not. And it makes sense why it happened. Woman, a middle aged woman who was driven crazy by, you know, <laughs> ideologues, by some crazy conspiracy theory, then like wasn't able to do what she was actually like trained and talented at, you know, doing making a mm. TV show. It's like fucking nuts. It is, it is nuts, and you can see why what happened happened and why the dominoes fell as they fell after she tweeted that. It's going to be a little difficult coming into work the next day, but it, it, it does show you that the platforms perhaps aren't adding to the sum of human happiness. No. <laughs> they're, it's just they're, a they're nightmare. Not. I'm just still very curious about the cultural theory. You know I agree with you on all of this. I just think you need to be pushed on whether – um, the um, whether the group think among these media institutions had something to do with their undoing or at least how they, they behaved in a more ineffective manner. But I'm also in agreement with you on the synthesis position that um, the incentives, the incentives is what caused the uh, the group think in, in many ways. Yeah. And here, I, I want to do yeah. so here. Let's let's talk about some solutions for a second. Just because okay. I feel yeah, like let's, I, let's let's slice this Gordian's knot right in half. Let's do it. So I feel like I, I there's it, I feel like there are some solutions that are starting to emerge. One is like breaking up these companies. And, uh, you know, AOC tweeted about this the other day, which uh, AOC tweeted about this the other day, which I loved, which is great. And now I'm a big AOC head. I'm all about AOC. I, I love you can tell if people can or can't pronounce her name just by whether uh, they go Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> There we go. You sound like a regular NPR broadcaster <laughs> where they really they, – they're not just going to say Guatemala. They're going to say Guatemala. Guatemala. They're going <laughs> to – yes. Guatemala. Uh, so – but, you know, I think breaking these things up is good. Facebook, at the, on the same day that BuzzFeed was destroyed, announced that they were, like, going to be pulling WhatsApp and Messenger and Instagram messages all into one app or some shit. So they're trying – the Zinep Tufekshi take on this is that they're consolidating in order to make themselves immune to – you know, antitrust legislation or something. But my hope is that somebody's brave enough to just go in there and just that's, rip that, the whole thing apart. That's tremendously, that's tremendously ironic. But you were saying, yeah. Well, so I, to me, it's like I think that you, you know, you rip out the newsfeed, you rip out the directory. Like I think Facebook doesn't even understand how many things are piled into it and how many products they actually are all in one. To me, it's like just mm -hmm. pull out the directory, this the, just the repository of human beings' names and photos. And like that is a standalone entity and then make a news feed and that's something. And then Instagram, this like other version of photo what, sharing what, is a thing. I, I don't want to get too into the politics and I want to be I want to look at the solutions. Um, and I, I, I do hope that subscription model can be can be part of that or, or, or companies going to subscription model um, can be part of that. But what do you make 
of how this is an AOC position and a Tucker Carlson position. Oh, I'm, what, what yes. do you make so of this? I'm, well, this is, I, I'm loving this, but this is, I very much believe this. This is such a bipartisan issue that regulating mm. tech, everybody hates Zuckerberg. I like, love this. I go on 4chan and people are making Zuck memes. You know, you fucking go on the New York Times and all of their, they're doing just tons and tons of coverage of, of tech mm. and, and what's going on. Like, it's, this is bipartisan. We all know this is bad. Like, we all have a lot of ideological differences, but we can all recognize that this sucks. And it just feels like shit. Mm. The internet used to be cool and it sucks now. And like, come on, you know, it, it's just so easy to see. And it just it increasingly seems like Zuckerberg and like the the people that run Facebook. If you work at that company, you just are a you're a bad person at, at a certain point. Did you see this thing about how uh, they stole from children? I wouldn't. Well, that sounds bad. I wouldn't go. I, 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 I get a little bit. Let me, I'm, I'm reluctant. I'm reluctant to, to be so absolutist on if you work for this institution, you're <laughs> a bad fair. person. I know. I'm, I'm sure there are good people, and I know people that work there, and they are good people. But you're what you're doing right now, it's like you're working for an oil company. It's like you're working for, which, you know, there are good people who work for oil companies. There's plenty of geologists working for oil yeah, companies. Yeah, think of how they sacrificed themselves in the movie Armageddon yes, for all of humanity. Right. But, like, but the point is, like, you have to know that you work for a bad guy they, they, so the, this report came out that facebook was doing what they termed and this is internally friendly fraud they were they were <laughs> this was a few years ago when there were more microtransactions going on on facebook kids were buying things on facebook with their parents credit cards but the kids didn't know that they were spending actual money and their parents didn't know that their credit card information was actually on facebook and could be used and facebook was like refusing to refund this stuff and you know Look, this I is like to, typical hey, 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 microsoft hey, and hey, xbox what's hey up? parenting I, I gotta say, I've gotten a look. It needs to be disrupted, Matt. You know, it's a lot of inefficiency in the whole parenting thing. Are we sure that parents are the ones who should be doing the parenting? Right, I'm just saying that be. these are open. These are open questions. Open their um, bank accounts and let the kids throw their money out the window. But they were yeah, stealing yeah. from children, and there were internal memos where they acknowledged this was happening. And then, literally, like um, it says in there, friendly fraud. What it is and why we shouldn't block it. Um. You are not bringing up in your argument against the cultural argument for digital media collapse. Uh, you're, you're not bringing up, in my opinion, the best case, which is that Quillette would theoretically be this Quillette. example of beating back against Quillette. the mainstream and there being value in that. And to be sure, they have gotten right. a lot of engagement, but I checked their Patreon. Have they? Well, I think they've gotten a lot of engagement in terms of clicks. <laughs> I think the fact that probably none of our readers know probably what our not. listeners know what Quillette is will <laughs> will speak for itself. Well, I, I also think that they could have chosen a better name. No, but I'm saying that this would be the best argument for the argument you're making, that there, there's been a lot of talk about Quillette going against the, um, I, I guess you'd call it the progressive orthodoxy of mainstream media in a way and in, in, in academia. And um, I think they, they get how much in Patreon money? A little over $200,000 per year, which is, I guess, good if you're a doctor in Iowa, but it probably isn't. Yeah. It's just like not enough to run. Yeah, it's not enough to run a publication. It's not exactly making the New York Times uh, quiver in its boots. So I think that would be an argument. Yeah, but this is so. But this is the problem. Like I don't even. I have no problem with Quillette existing. I think they're an independent journalistic enterprise. I think they should exist. But Jesus, they should be able to make enough money to exist if they have a sizable readership. You know, the things that, that the, we've all, what we've also learned is that the, the number of people you need to make an impact on society isn't that high. 
you know you, you no. like having a strong base of like tens of thousands is like can can really make an impact but if you can't mobilize that many people because you can't create an institution around them that is sustainable then that movement just isn't going to happen. We, we've entered a police state. It, it's sort of like, you know, those college campuses they designed in the 70s or whatever where people couldn't, so that people couldn't riot, you know, when they made dorms or like UCSD in like the 60s in reaction to Vietnam. They designed the campuses so that people couldn't it, congregate It's hilarious anywhere. to me that they were worried about people at UCSD rioting, but yes, you were saying. Yeah, right, yeah. But so, yeah, so like that, that, that's essentially what we've done to the internet. It was we made it so that people can either all gather together in one big space or they can't really organize together mm. at all. And like even in the and big it, space it's just like sharing one post. And now it's, now it's you know become I mean? a, a boring commuter school with no uh, centralized sense of identity. There's just no way that like small groups of people can like meaningfully organize, mm. which is crazy because that was the whole point of the internet. I mean, I, <laughs> It's just they just broke the whole fucking thing and they keep talking like oh this is the this is how it's meant to be. And yet all I know is that the most interesting stuff that's going on is on podcasts and email. Radio and mail are now the most like, you know, relevant and interesting forms. And it's because those are the only ones that are open platforms. That an email newsletter of twenty to thirty thousand people has a ton of impact and a podcast of that much listenership as well. Those are the only places where people of that size can congregate around an institution yeah i've noticed this is the era of the newsletter that that so many different people have newsletters i don't subscribe to any newsletters matt i'm I'm newsletter illiterate i keep forwarding you the casey newton one it's very good shout out to the to the interface casey newton's newsletter which is a daily newsletter on social media stuff and every day it's exciting that's what's crazy is that so much shit happens every day in this world so do you view that newsletter as a curation-based newsletter as opposed to generating new content? Yeah, it is. It's 100%. It replaced me Googling Facebook every day for, like, Facebook news. Yeah, well, I guess there, there, there's such an inundation of information that people want it organized now. And that's that's also part of our, our sort of malaise that we've fallen into. Um, well, but this is like a human, you know, like, the, that's what the feed was supposed to be, but, like, algorithms suck at it, and this guy Casey has, like, an interesting take and perspective. He puts together the, like, right news stories and does a little context where he quotes out the best parts of them, the ones that I'm really interested in. I'll open those tabs and read them. The other ones, it's just, like, good color. Like, and if I don't have time to go through everything, it's there. People need to be involved in, like, the editor and creation, the curation process. Otherwise, it, like, all falls apart and becomes this fucking, yeah, the casinos of narcissism that we're left with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm trying to put it all together, the, the, the place we're at, why things feel worse in general, how we're coming, how we're really coming to part of the seams and in, in a way that's just, I guess it's not unprecedented in, in American society, but um, I, you often talk about this and maybe this will be the final thing we'll discuss, but I, I like it. It's a big idea. It's just a big idea of trust has collapsed we don't trust each other and you can just see this in so many places and it's important to have trust it's hard to get anything done without trust and what do you perceive as facebook and perhaps google will throw it in there as their role in in the trust decreasing that that we just don't trust each other yeah so the trust thing comes from a lot of this like as, as a comedian all a lot of people want to talk to me about is oh you can't say anything anymore like oh you know college campuses and like all like that that kind of stuff 
right? People are like, you can't be funny anymore. You can't say stuff anymore. And like, I, to some extent, like I understand the argument because you just see people this saying is, this like, is, this is, the, this is, this is a cultural argument. This is the cultural argument again in a different way. Cultural yeah. argument. Yes, exactly. And you, you do see people, you know, people being wary of like what they're going to say, especially depending on who you are, like who, like, you know, the, you, you uh, have Seth, you have Seth Meyers say, having people of different census categories telling jokes that he would otherwise tell as, as part of their, their gimmick. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Like you see a reaction to this, like this is, it's definitely something that's going on, but at the same time, like if I, like if you know me, uh, you know, and I'm talking to, you know, a friend and, and, you know, saying things that are, you know, saying bad words or saying like, you know, making points or whatever, you know where I'm coming from. People know where I'm coming from, what my politics are, what my ethics are. And, but most of all, they just know that I, they can trust me because I'm like a good person who wants the best for society yep. you know when it, this is the thing like when Kevin Hart got like you know dragged for his old stuff he, his whole thing is like look I love everybody I just want love for all people and you know I, yes there were these previous statements but and nobody you know, nobody I don't nobody buys now. that anymore or at least the loudest voices don't buy that anymore yeah sure whatever yeah. it is but I think that and you know definitely people should be you know held accountable for bad things that they've done in the past. It's not about that. What it's about is this like creeping sense that like, we don't trust each other to be oh. good people. And if I make a joke that we're not trusting that I'm going to yet derail you again, because we talked about this okay. a little bit and I was thinking about this. So to bring it back to the Tucker Carlson thing of what he said nine years ago to me on the phone, that <laughs> sent me down a particular rabbit hole where uh, I, 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 because you asked me, do you have the audio of you calling him the second time to ask him about it? Because that would be hilarious audio to have. And I looked for it. Yes. I searched for his name, but I didn't find it. Instead, when I searched his name, what popped up were my various um, sorts of uh, G-chat conversations of uh, us talking about this. And I went down this crazy rabbit hole of just seeing my old G-chat conversations from a decade ago and there were various things I said that I was saying in context or I was doing ironically or maybe I would use terrible terms, but maybe I was playing a character, right? And I thought to myself, it's stupid, but I have to delete these. I have to delete these just because I can't trust whether if somebody ever hacked my email and got these out to the public that there, there wouldn't be that trust. There wouldn't be that trust if I said that this was a joke or if it was meant ironically. It would just be something that would make my life worse. And there's something absurd about that, that you effectively have to throw away uh, these notes from your life, these artifacts of how life was lived in 2009, right? But that's just we, – we don't have as much trust now because of whatever reason, because of the technologies we're using, and that, that explanation will not suffice. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I think that like, and you can understand this. I mean, I don't think you need to delete those. Like, I think there, I would like to believe that people could see things in context. But like, we're living in a space where no. everything is decontextualized yeah, time constantly. Is, time Twitter is, is a decontextualization now. machine. Time is flat now. Everything I said, not right, not, sure. not only will it be decontextualized from. Oh yeah, sure, you were you were just being ironic, but to get away, whatever, right? Not only is it decontextualized that way, time is decontextualized. It's like I said it today. Sure, that's that's how. 
was, but I think that like what happened, I think a lot of like what we feel that happened was all these, we were making all these ironic jokes, people saying, you know, the N word ironically, or, you know, calling people fags ironically, or, you know, like where you're taking on the character of somebody that you, and you knew and your friends know that that's not you. You're making fun of that thing. That in fact, you're so polar opposite to somebody who would say or believe something like that, that you're saying them in a joking manner in order to point out how wrong and bad they are. Like that was like a sense of humor, irony humor. But what happened was this this concept of irony poisoning, where so many people got, you know, like so many people were joking about things ironically, and then they started to believe mm. them. And then that upswelling was really what like led a lot of the like you know 4chan and meme culture that got Trump. So, so you think that so you and think so that you that to, is a real phenomenon? You think of people testing out yes, where they're going. Yes. With the yes, joke. people were saying racist jokes ironically, <laughs> and then they became actual racists. Like this is like, like what two happened. couples are sitting down together, and rather than just make the the swingers entree, somebody goes, "Oh, I don't know. I mean, we're getting along. Maybe I should. Uh, maybe maybe we should switch wives." <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be funny if we fucked each other's wives? How hilarious would that be? And then suddenly you're just doing it, and you are swingers. But so you can understand that, especially like people, you know, minorities or marginalized populations that people who are like traditionally victims of the large system they're looking out at this and they're saying like huh like i th like are these people joking these people were well, joking until they fucking i wouldn't weren't. i wouldn't necessarily I generalize anyone still I, I wouldn't necessarily generalize said populations because there's a lot of survey data to indicate that the majority in certain populations actually say no i hate political correctness in survey data and sometimes people sure. people who speak for the entirety of populations well, but, but I yes I, what, but really, what, yeah the, the, to me this isn't about political correctness yes. to me it's about what is publishing and what mm. isn't it's like what is posting something online publishing or is uh -huh. it not like I would never publish a racist joke without like, you know, contextualizing it fully. But I would say it to you knowing that we both know that I'm not racist and I don't believe that. And that's a joke. You know, it's an example of what a racist would say. And maybe I'm making fun of a racist. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's like so there's a difference between like needing like what is what should be published and what shouldn't. And like with this erosion of privacy we have to recognize that not only does that mean our like information and data is being taken out. It also means that like what is and isn't private is being changed. Yeah. Like what is a personal conversation and what is a conversation well, meant for publication for general audiences to see and to comment on that is shifting. Oh yeah. What, what, what was, what was changing. interesting too about the G chats was just how innocent I was at the time in that I was having all of these conversations as though they were the way we would talk in private face-to-face -face, that right. there was absolutely so if you just read them back. There, there was absolutely no sense and this has maybe even little to do with whatever words are used whatever they're used ironically but i could just tell the tonality reading them over that i was having conversations that i regarded as the exact same kind of conversation that we would be having over the phone offline and there was a period of time where people naively had conversations over text that they thought were going to be private because they didn't assume or think that maybe this could be hacked or maybe this could be shared and I, I would be put in the stocks and humiliated over what I'm saying in this context. And now that has infected, I think, a lot of people's conversations. And now I say things in group chats that I would definitely not want out in the world, things about colleagues and, and, and whatnot. But even then, there is a slight tax on what I might say digitally. And even then, there are things where 
I would not have that conversation digitally and I might have that conversation over the phone. And I think that is becoming more and more part of culture. Yeah, well, it's just like what is private, what isn't private, what is published, what isn't published, what can be stolen and leaked out online. There just is no privacy and there is no barrier between publication and private anymore. And then on top of that, you're put, you're leading them on these, yeah, like context destroying uh, platforms that are also themselves like run on destroying trust and truth. They want extreme things. They want the most extreme version of something. They want to misunderstand something so that it can prove somebody's point that has maybe nothing to do with that original. Uh, now, now, so like all the incentives are not in place for there to be a trusting my, my, my society of people working my together. Friend in my friend, my, uh, it's funny, I'm just beating the dead horse of Gawker after it's dead. I, I, I would say that is a major reason why I ultimately, while acknowledging that there were many talented people at Gawker and it certainly had a heyday, but why I would ultimately say it was a force for bad instead of a force for good was that very dynamic where... I think well, but I wonder. I wonder even in that case, was this the way they were, or was this incentivized by the way things were being spread online? Even in that earlier yeah, stage. Yeah, it's well. That's the thing, and this is the synthesis. It's it's the uh, the the culture meets the environment, or the environment meets the culture. That maybe they got down that road because of where the incentives were, but I I think that they did set a template that became commonplace within digital media and journalism it was a template of have a headline or a characterization of an outgroup person saying something have have a characterization that is absurd and mocking what they're saying in order to humiliate them and it, it's not an easy thing to do necessarily to do it right and it is something a smart person can get quite enraptured with. It's like solving a crossword puzzle. How do I take what you're saying and synthesize it down into an absurd headline to make fun of you? Um, that's that's not completely easy. And it, it, it's a way a smart person can get completely captured in trying to solve that puzzle every day, especially if it makes them money. And it became the ultimate mode of communication on Twitter, I think among media people, because Twitter is such a truncated medium that you almost have to do it by necessity. So you would just see that, yeah, you would but, see that happening over and over this, again. And the thing is, yeah. it's the way a smart person gets stupid because ultimately you stop even understanding what other people are saying. You stop investigating, you stop testing your limits. You're just caught up in this game of trying to straw man in a clever manner. And that became, I, I believe a major issue culturally. A major one. Yeah, I mean, th that's just like what Twitter is. It's a place where straw men, where people well, just straw men constantly. Yeah. Straw men in a clever way. Straw, man, straw man and tone. also just constantly people lobbying, as we've discussed before, uh, sort of, you're a hypocrite. No, you're a hypocrite. No, you're a hypocrite. No, you're a hypocrite. It just goes on like that endlessly. Yeah, hypocrites all It the just way goes down. on like that completely. Just there's, there, there's no end to it. You know, hey, I'm, I'm showing that the out group is hypocritical to my in-group and that out-group is showing that I'm hypocritical to their in-group and none of us are actually combining our ideas or learning from one another. We're just doing this all fucking day. Yeah, I, and, I, and that's what we need. I think like we just need to get to a space where like the incentives are not aligned to like profit off of what people are saying and doing in ways in which the people who profit off them can direct those mm. things. This is like surveillance capitalism yeah. stuff. This is like the solution to me. And, uh, and another I, shout I've, out to Shoshana Zabuff's yeah, new book, yeah. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which everybody must read, where it's like once you make systems that profit off of the way people do things, the way people are, 
it's a very short distance to influencing how people are in order to make sure they're always doing the things that make mm-hmm. you money. It's very easy to like with tiny little ways to do this. And for the people doing it, not even to realize that's what they're doing. So to me, this, if we were to get to kind of like solutions of this, I, I really do think that like a core solution is killing the surveillance like capitalism state killing surveillance advertising targeted advertising mm. although it seems like a benign thing i actually think it this is, is like one of the core root problems of all of this and if we get rid of that incentive if we get rid of that being the way that you make money by putting things online targeted advertising to audiences and go back to a slower less efficient system of having to broker through institutions that target people based on like, look, 30, you know, people 28 to 35 like this website, you can advertise here and give us a money commensurate to what it takes to run this institution. That's a better system than having this hyper-targeted advertising that follows you around the internet and frankly doesn't seem that much more I I don't automatically endorse these reforms necessarily because I don't presume to immediately understand all the unintended consequences from a from a big digital reform, but I don't reject them out of hand either. I think that we need to be thinking in these ways, right? And this maybe should be a law, and there should be a rule against um, this surveillance, uh, this surveillance method of doing things. I mean, maybe from a corporate perspective, I know you were raising the idea when we were texting that these institutions should have their journalists not tweet. And maybe that's something they should do. Oh yeah. That's interesting. I, that to it. Yes. I think that you should pay your journalists. If you run an institution, pay your journalists not to tweet, except maybe promotional work for your work. I mean, this goes back to the thing that we ended the podcast with last week of Ethan's prescription for using Twitter. Just use it promotionally. Institutions should do the same thing. Pay your journalists extra not to tweet. The whole reason they're tweeting is to make sure that they can get a job. There would be a pushback to this because if I was running a media company, if I was running um, a, a sports media company and I am not Thank God, it seems like a lot of work. Um, I would, I would say, hey, you have one contract uh, where you earn X amount, and you have this other contract where you earn twenty percent less. That one is a contract in which you're allowed to tweet whatever the fuck you want. You can tweet all the time. That, they, but it, the, you know that that's your choice. You know, there, there's the one where you're basically only tweeting out your work. I, yeah, I, I, I think there'd be I, a lot of pushback. I, I there'd be that. a lot of pushback to that of you're trying to censor, and if you were trying to get a big fish, they would have a lot of leverage, and they would go, "Hey, you know, I'm not going to work for you if I'm." Yeah, yeah, I I understand those, but I think we have to realize that the incentives are different now. That that big fish thinks that like, yeah, for now maybe they can make more money, or for now maybe they get more exposure, but for how long? Mm-hmm. And I think institutions at the same time need to also, you know, basically, yes, in that contract, they can't tweet, but also make a stronger commitment to that employee. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where unions come in and things like that, well, where, why I think it, the collective bargaining. Is, is your argument people, you know, for doing this, because we might have slightly different perspectives on it, is it that you want Twitter undermined or that you believe that they're working for free on Twitter when they should be working for their publication? Is that what you're trying to incentivize? Yeah, yeah, both. I think people are working for free when they should be getting paid, and you're creating a system in which people are competing with the free versions of themselves. Culturally, for right? the cultural argument, I think that these people are often turning off customers needlessly because they're often... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I can see that too. This might just be for the benefit. Yeah. But also, yeah, we need to undermine these platforms. The only way that we destroy them isn't by regulating them. It's by getting people off of them. And the way you get people off of them is having the people who are on them who are good fucking leaving because mm. they can make money elsewhere. Yeah, um, I'm 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 with that. I'm I'm with that, and that is why 
I'm voting for Howard Schultz for president of the United States. No, I don't. <laughs> I can't believe how I, I can't believe how lucky we are that Starbucks billionaire Howard Schultz is a man, the race. Prim- I mean, a man, man primarily known man primarily known for uh, being the reason why Seattle lost their beloved Supersonics. <laughs> That's the primary thing he's known for, I believe, beyond the Starbucks. You know, he 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 provided not just coffee, but thinking spaces <laughs> for everyone all across America. I don't know, it's like fucking billionaires. I mean, like I don't need this shit. All right, you want to you want to call it for right we now, buddy? We will call it uh we will call it. I think we had a, a rich uh conversation. I I don't even know what I was trying to do. I was somewhere between playing devil's advocate and actually explaining my position, but I think you're ultimately right. And being the devil and being himself. the devil. I'm somewhere between devils and devil's advocate. But yeah, we gotta give this some snappy name for the cultural versus environmental argument of media collapse. Maybe that will be the name of the podcast. Yeah. Anyway. Media collapse hey, podcast. Hey, I wanna thank anybody and everybody who listened because I do care yes, about customer too. service. Yeah, we care very much about our customers. All about our customers, uh, despite having no advertising and just doing this as a hobby. Yeah, that's why you get this podcast for free. It's still on SoundCloud, has not yet been approved by the iTunes store. Next, uh, ne- So it's hard to find, and we appreciate it. Next podcast, it. <laughs> we'll discuss something Matt calls platform cucking. That will be, uh, that oh, will be yeah, on the next love one. Platform cucks. <laughs> love platform cups. All right, take All right, it easy, Ethan.